Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, so here's a joke that might not be that funny, but bear with me. What did the left eye say to the right eye? Between you and me, something smells. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newham, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from Naomi Jackson. Her novel, The Star Side of Bird Hill, just came out. We will hear more from her later. Plus, we speak with Tim Heidecker and Eric Wareheim, aka comedy duo Tim and Eric, about a system they created that will change your life. And all you have to do is rip your guts out. It's easy. It's a little creepy. Also coming up, we explore a fake show about reality TV. TV, and fittingly for the 4th of July weekend, America's poet laureate Juan Felipe Herrera makes a declamacion. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. More bad news on the business front for Donald Trump today. The Greek government is seeking a third bailout. The United States has agreed to formally reestablish diplomatic relations with the Republic of Cuba. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are here with Lizzie O'Leary. She is the host of Marketplace Weekend. Lizzie, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this weekend? One that is excellent and no yoke. Okay. Uh, I think something, is this going to relate to a chicken? Yeah, I sense a lot of puns, but what is the story? The 2015 World Egg Throwing Championships in the village of Swayton, England. Mm. Spelled like Swatton, but they're very specific about this on their Facebook page, that it is Swayton. Why is, what makes that egg throwing contest different than what happens on Halloween Eve around the country? (laughs) That's somebody's house you don't like. Um, This whole thing dates its history supposedly to 1322 or so Mm. when the local abbot was the only person who had chickens and encouraged people to come to church by giving them eggs. Apparently, there was a massive flood. The only way he could get the eggs to his parishioners was tossing them across the river. Hence, an egg toss festival. (laughs) And now they celebrate it. Yeah, by tossing eggs at each other like (laughs) a bunch of summer campers. By wasting food. What does the festival consist of? They just hurl eggs at each other and it's over? Oh, no, no, no. There are many competitions. In fact, there is one where you get points for tossing eggs at a quote, local lad, three points if you (laughs) nail him in the groin. Oh, Uh, sounds like Britain. Yep. There is also the Russian Egg Roulette Championship in which there are six eggs, five of which are boiled, one of which is not, and you smash them against your forehead. (laughs) Until someone ends up with egg on their face, literally. That's amazing. Oh, goodness. It's wild times. Wild times in England. You know, if this abbot had just put a chicken on a raft, there could have been a way cooler game. Slip and slide? No, just chicken on a raft. <laughs> Wouldn't that be more interesting? See, that than... sounds like a that sounds like a meal, chicken on a raft. Uh, Lizzie O'Leary, thank you so much for the small talk. Anytime, guys. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our internationally celebrated history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week, back in 1868, a Milwaukee inventor patented a gadget that changed the world. No, it wasn't the beer bottling machine. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Angry no one has good penmanship these days? Blame Christopher Latham Shoals. Scholes was a printer, a newspaper editor, and a politician. And somewhere in there, he also found time to invent stuff, like a machine that printed page numbers into books. And then he read a magazine article that changed his life. 
It was about a newfangled contraption described as a literary piano. By hitting keys, you could print letters right onto a piece of paper. But it was a clumsy gizmo, so with the help of a pal, Scholes designed a better one. With it, he could tap out a sentence faster than the fastest penman in town could write it. Scholes called it the typewriter. One problem, though, he didn't have cash to manufacture the thing. So to prospective investors, he sent letters. Typed on the typewriter, of course. A money man named James Densmore took one look, and he was in. A decision he regretted when he actually saw Scholl's prototype. It printed words on the underside of the paper, so you couldn't see what you were typing. It could only print capital letters. And if you weren't an expert typist, the keys kept jamming. An issue, since Scholl's was the only expert typist on Earth. Scholz fixed the jamming problem by making sure common letter pairs, like T and H, didn't sit next to each other on the keyboard. Voila! The QWERTY configuration we know today. As for those other flaws, the machine became the first big-selling typewriter anyway. Alas, before it proved a hit, Scholz sold his share of the patent for a few thousand bucks. But the typewriter made Densmore a millionaire. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the drink to go along with it. I'm joined by John Dye. He's the owner of Bryant's Cocktail Lounge in Milwaukee, home of the typewriter. And John, am I right? Uh, Bryant's is the oldest cocktail lounge in Milwaukee? Uh, it is. Been here since 1938. You've watched the typewriter come and go from, right, from the right. cocktail. <laughs> Although you don't sound like you've been around since 1938. No, no, 1939. So. All right. Well, you sound great. <laughs> so you heard the you heard the history lesson. Uh, what drink did you decide to make? Well, we decided to create the Hunt and Peck cocktail. Okay, so an homage to those people who never quite learned the QWERTY keyboard. So what's in your drink? Well, we start with uh, two ounces of Kinnikinick whiskey, which is a local whiskey made about uh, one mile south of where Latham Scholes invented the typewriter. All right. And then we add uh, one half ounce of Punte Mass. It's a nice bitter Italian vermouth because the story is a little bitter. Yeah. Now, uh, Latham Scholes uh, walked away with about $12,000 and his partner walked away with more than a million. So we have some American whiskey and we have some vermouth. What else is in your drink? Uh, then we add one half ounce of Ramazzotti Amaro. And the reason we chose that is actually because I really don't think that you could type Ramazzotti on an old keyboard <laughs> without jamming it up. It really put that, the QWERTY to a test. That, that sounds about right. Although if you misspelled Ramazzotti, I don't think a lot of people would notice. Right, so. that's true. <laughs> and what is it? What is in that? It's a nice bitter Amaro. It has a little bit of sweetness, a little bit of bitterness, sort of rounds out the drink. Uh, then we add a pinch of salt, two dashes of Angostura bitters, and two dashes of Peychaud's bitters. And so then what are you going to do with all these ingredients? Add ice, give it a nice long stir until it's very cold, strain it into a coupe glass, add an orange twist, and... We have a hunt and peck cocktail. And I have a question about the lounge. Do you get uh, internet service or, or phones functional <laughs> in your bar? You know, strangely, sometimes cell phones don't really work that well in here, and I like to think it's some sort of ghost of the past. There's nothing more annoying than being in a bar and everyone's just looking at their phones, hunting and pecking, as it were, text messages <laughs> to their friends. Right. <laughs> John Dye of Bryant's Cocktail Lounge in Milwaukee. You can find the Hunt and Peck recipe on our website. Just type dinnerpartydownload.org into a web browser. And while you're there, you can sign up for our weekly email newsletter in which we feature a new drink recipe every week. And we tell you about whatever's going on in the office that day. Please excuse the typos. 
now, The Guest List, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And our guest is comedian Chris Gethard. His New York public access TV show, The Chris Gethard Show, gained a huge cult following and now airs on the national cable network Fusion. The New York Times called it a, quote, riveting experiment in seat-of-your-pants broadcasting. It features a panel interacting in very weird ways with the audience and with callers who might, for instance, help Chris build a burrito on his naked belly. Here's Chris with his list. Hi, my name's Chris Gethard, and I'm the host of The Chris Gethard Show. I think I just really like comedy where you're not necessarily certain how you're supposed to react to it. So here's a few different shows that are very twisted, in my opinion, and they specifically kind of border talk show and game show and variety show. They really make that line between them hazy. Anyway, they were very inspiring to me, and I hope you enjoy them too. One of the first things that came to mind is actually, it was a weird game slash variety show that I discovered in the early 90s when I was a preteen. I didn't understand it. I still know very little about it. It was called El Gran Juego de la Oca. It was a Spanish language show. I don't speak Spanish, but I would watch this show and it was kind of like a human-sized board game. And if you landed on different spots, different horrible things would happen. I turned it on one day and one of the contestants on this episode inexplicably was a post- total fame, pre-ironic rebirth, Mr. T. Mr. T had to crawl through a tunnel and a clock was counting down and then when the clock ran to zero, the tunnel exploded. And in the context of this totally absurd environment, what you actually wind up with is Mr. T, the toughest dude in my childhood, completely disarmed acting like more of a genuine human being than you've ever seen him act like before. That really left an imprint on me. I realized I really kind of follow that mold in the sense of like, let's do something big and absurd. Let's do it with a celebrity because it makes them kind of vulnerable in a way where they become a lot more willing to talk about the human things. The second thing on my list was made by a hero of mine, Andy Kaufman. He had a, a late-night variety talk special type thing. Direct from Andy Kaufman's parents' house in Westbury, Long Island, it's time for Uncle Andy's Funhouse! For anybody who might not be familiar, Andy Kaufman was a comic, but he kind of referred to himself more as a song and dance man. A lot of people now say he was a performance artist. And Uncle Andy's Funhouse, I am sort of obsessed with. Some of the things that stand out are he intentionally made it look like the TV was flickering. Anybody who's old enough will remember that you used to have to kind of hit the side of your TV if the antenna wasn't tuned right because you'd get lines vertical and horizontal and things would start. He did it to make people think their TV was broken so they would hit it. But he did a bunch of stuff. He interviewed Howdy Doody on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and privilege to present the original Howdy Doody. It's so touching because Howdy Doody is clearly a childhood idol of his. And Howdy Doody, we are all aware, is a puppet. He's speaking to a puppet with so much emotion. He's thanking him so profusely. It's one of the most beautiful interviews I think you'll ever see. Hi, Howdy. Oh, well, hi, Andy. You're the first friend from television I ever had. And uh, I always wanted to meet you, and now I finally am. Well, Andy, I, I'm, I'm glad to meet you, too. I think it's a piece of tape that would be ahead of its time today. And he did it decades ago. 
So number three on my list is a thing that I really embraced growing up in New Jersey. It's a show called The Uncle Floyd Show. This guy, Uncle Floyd, started like a self-made TV show, I think in the 70s, and he just made it forever. It is very low budget, very rough around the edges. He had a puppet named Oogie. Did you ever stop and think, if there wasn't an Uncle Floyd show, what everyone on the show would be doing? (laughs) Why, Oogie, I think about that all the time. And he would have super cool underground bands. Stay tuned for D.D. Ramon. For a lot of us kids growing up in New Jersey, the idea that he was local was so mind-blowing. We couldn't make a perfect show. We're not Hollywood people. We're kids from North Jersey. But he's just a guy from North Jersey making a show, and I don't care that it's rough around the edges because that's part of what's great about it. And you really kind of learned that the more you watched Uncle Floyd. The guest list from Chris Gethard... His own homegrown show can now be seen streaming live online Tuesdays, and it airs on the Fusion Network Thursday nights. All right, coming up, poet laureate Juan Felipe Herrera talks about poetry, and comedy duo Tim and Eric don't. Of course. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, comedy duo Tim and Eric answer your etiquette questions. Oh my. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's poet, performer, teacher, and activist Juan Felipe Herrera. His work is known for its exuberance, its experimentalism, and its focus on cultural identity. Mm. He's written over a dozen poetry collections, including Half the World in Light, New and Selected Poems, which earned him the National Book Critics Circle Award. Born in 1948 in California, Herrera was the Poet Laureate of the Golden State until two weeks ago when he was named Poet Laureate of the entire country, the Mm. first Latino to ever hold the position. When I spoke with him this week, I asked if laureates actually receive laurels. (laughs) Well, you know, the wreath of laurel is uh, all the beautiful uh, people uh, that have been uh, greeting me and celebrating and being so excited, running around their houses and rooms and, and shouting out and just supporting me and being ready to uh, to write and express themselves and come together. So that's that's the wreath right there. So you grew up in California. You're, you're the son of California migrant workers. I wonder, what did your parents think about you becoming a poet? You know, I'm an only child, so I was I was given extreme freedom. So they they had no problem with it at all. They just wanted you to kind of follow your bliss, and they they wanted me to follow my bliss, to find my bliss. Uh, but you know, I, I I never really said I was a poet, or you know, stood up in the middle of the kitchen and and recited a poem. Even though my mother would do that, uh, whenever she felt an inspiration, uh, lightning bolt, she would stand up and recite a poem, and what we call in Spanish declamación, where you kind of sing out, you shout out, uh, you do your own home-style spoken word, and you lift your arms and you wave your hands and you bend your body and you get this interesting look on your face as if you're uh, announcing to the community the coming of a new season. Mm-hmm. So that's what she used to do. So I guess uh, I, I just uh, kind of just thought about it and felt it and did it outside. Mm. Well, I want to play a clip of you doing your own sort of uh, declamation. It's from a reading you did a while back of one of your more celebrated poems. Uh, It's entitled, 187 Reasons Mexicanos Can't Cross the Border. Here we go. 187 Reasons Mexicanos Can't Cross the Border. Because Lou Dobbs and Bill O'Reilly and G.W. Bush and the Minutemen say so. Because... 
Because it's Indian land stolen from our mothers. Because, because we're, too e we're too emotional when it comes to our mothers. Because, because we've been doing it for over 500 years already. Because, because, um, because it's too easy to say, I am from here. Because, because uh, Latin American petrochemical juice flows first. Because. Because so uh, that clip <laughs> captures your sense of humor, your, your taste for performance, your interest in political themes, and specifically the Chicano experience. How did that poem come to be? Do you remember? Well, you know, it was the early 90s when we had a uh, Proposition 187 that was all about cutting back and cutting off uh, services for uh, undocumented brothers and sisters here in, uh, in California. Mm. So I took that number, 187, and wrote 187 ah. lines of reasons why, you know, because that's what it was, that proposition proposed yeah. reasons why we could not receive services. Yeah. And uh, so my poem was 100, I added, I I kind of clarified those those uh, reasons as a poet in that poem. It's a pretty political poem with a specific point of view. And now as Poet Laureate, you're representing the entire country of people, including those who have a different view of immigrants. I, I wonder what your thoughts are on broadening your scope. Well, you know, my scope is broad, you know. Uh, I, I've always been open to uh, and continue to be and will be open to all points of view. You know, a poem is, uh, is a flexible thing. And a poem is a poem, you know. It's not a report. It's mm. not a, a piece of research necessarily. Or, and it's not an article and it's not an essay, although it shares all those things. Uh, so a poem is to be, um, you know, examined and maybe appreciate it kind of in uh, 10,000 ways. At the same time, uh, you're right, I, I look forward to including more and more and more and more and zillions of uh, ways of looking at things, and I believe in that. Also in that reading, you can hear a bit of Allen Ginsberg, one of your mentors, and he had a anti-establishment streak. You kind of have the same streak. Uh, and poets in general are often thought of as, you know, bohemians, outside observers, reporters, the position of Poet Laureate seems to run counter to that. Being an official poet <laughs> seems kind of oxymoronic. <laughs> well, you know, uh, bohemians are, are, we're a lot of colors, you know. We're a lot of uh, berets, a lot of hats, and a lot of, uh, you know, skirts and a lot of uh, <laughs> belts and instruments. And uh, so it's okay. Uh, no, you know, it's, it's a good thing, you know. It's a good thing for poets as we have always been an artist, as we have always been in human beings, as we have always been to uh, walk many trails and cross many mountains and embrace embrace all rivers, embrace all stars. And that's how poetry is written. You know, if we just limit ourselves to a tiny space, that poem is going to, it'll be starving, you know. It'll mm. be a starving poem. A poem needs a lot of, a lot of nutrients. So the more places we go, the better. I think your answer just gave us a window into your writing process. Uh, okay, well, we have two standard questions that we ask each of our guests. Oh, yeah. And the first one is, tell us what question you're tired of being asked. Well, tell you the truth, uh, I, I really love all questions. I know it sounds, it sounds mushy because, <laughs> you know, I'm a new guy every day, and it's a new moment every day. Okay. And uh, it may be the same question, but I'll have a different answer. So mm. I, I like it. I, it's okay, you know. Okay. I, I get to expand. I get to add another stanza to the poem of that question. I, I wish I wish I had your enthusiasm for each new day. Uh, <laughs> our second question is: Tell us something we don't know, 
And this can be a personal fact about you that you haven't shared in interviews or just an interesting kind of piece of trivia about the world. Well, you know, about me, I guess it would be one of my jobs I've had in in the past uh, was sitting in a small room, tiny room, almost like a closet in front of a small early uh, Mac computer Mm. counting lizard tails on Channel (laughs) Island. So someone was collecting data on lizards yeah, and you yeah, would process it. Yeah, I was just, just looking at, uh, you know, reports that mentioned and photographs that mentioned lizard tails, what kind of <laughs> lizards with what kind of tails. And that was one of my very creative employment positions I had. <laughs> Do you remember how many lizard tails there were on the Channel Islands? Because if you did, you could answer both the personal part of this question and the trivia part. I think you know, there were could... like 1,727 Lizard tails that I counted. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Great memory. Enrico, I couldn't confirm that number one gave us there. Oh, that's weird. But I did learn, yeah, but I did learn the Channel Islands are the only place you'll find the island night lizard, its real name, which among other cool things gives birth to live young Unlike most reptiles, which wow. lay eggs. That is cool. cool. Also, yeah. uh, if Jimmy Buffett's next album isn't called Island Night Lizard, <laughs> I just I won't know what to believe in anymore. Yes. Uh, Let me know when you buy it. Folks, you will find a few of Juan's poems at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. Brooklynite Naomi Jackson drew upon her family's roots in Barbados to write her acclaimed new debut novel. But she says, quote, the most interesting parts are fiction. Today, we overhear an excerpt. Hi, my name is Naomi Jackson, and I'm the author of The Star Side of Bird Hill. And it follows two girls, Dion, who's just turned 16, and Phaedra, who's 10. And in this section, we get to take a look at the girl's life in Brooklyn and what drove their mother, Avril, to send them home to Barbados. It might help to know that Abasian is someone from Barbados and Bird Hill is an imagined community in rural Barbados. In Brooklyn, Barbados was Bimshire, a jewel that Bajans turned over in their minds, a candy whose sweetness they sucked on whenever the bitter cold and darkness of life in America became too much to bear. Almost 20 years into living in the States, Avril had no illusions of moving home and starting over again, like the other women she knew who went home every year, packed barrels and kept up with phone calls, went to the meetings of the old boys and old girls clubs of their high schools, where fattened, impoverished versions of themselves showed up in the harsh lights of church basements in Brooklyn. Still, she told Dion and Phaedra that no matter what she felt about Bird Hill, it was important that they spend time with their grandmother and get to know the place without which they would still be specks in God's eye. Phaedra got her sense of what it might mean to go home one evening in Brooklyn. She was seven when she made the mistake of complaining about having to eat chicken for dinner every night. Avril's eyes turned from their usual dough brown to the shiny black beads they became under the influence of brandy or the winds of a changing mood. You think life's hard here? Try life at home, she said. 
Phaedra knew better than to respond to what she knew was not a question. She went back to pushing withered chicken strips around on her plate. And then she felt her chair give way beneath her. Suddenly, she was on the floor, and the full heat of her mother's rage was upon her. Avril hovered over Phaedra, seething, trying to decide what to do with her. She dragged Phaedra down their apartment's long hallway, holding her by the flesh at the top of her right arm, talking the whole way. You think people at home eat meat every day? You want to go home to live with Granny? Let's send you home and see if you like it there. Avril flipped on the light in the girls' bedroom and rifled around in their closet for suitcases. Phaedra didn't dare offer to help by telling her mother that they were stored beneath the bunk beds. Avril found one eventually, a red valise coated in a thick layer of dust. Avril pushed Phaedra and the suitcase into the cold hallway, repeating her classic line, Who don't hear will feel... Please, Mommy, I'll be good. Just let me come inside, Phaedra said to the closed door, even after she'd heard her mother turn up the volume on the television to drown out her noise. Phaedra's tears had dried by the time Avril finally came to the door to let her back in. Avril didn't say anything, not about dinner or what she'd done. From then... It was impossible to separate the idea of going to Barbados from the stark memory of Avril's anger. Bird Hill was for Phaedra, at first, as much a place to be banished to as a place to call home. Naomi Jackson reading from her new debut novel, The Star Side of Bird Hill, That piece was edited for time, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And, well, actually, this week we're going to talk about lists of food, a.k.a. menus, of course. All right, my favorite reading material. I'm with you. And actually, that's kind of the approach towards menus that's being taken right now at the L.A. Public Library. They just launched a book and an exhibition called To Live and Dine in L.A., which I Mm, love. I've done that. Yes, you have. Both of which show off some of the tens of thousands of menus they have in their collection. Hmm. And curator Josh Kuhn wants these things to be read like historical texts, sort of tracing the history of everything from L.A.'s class divides to its design sense. This week, he gave me a quick tour of the exhibit. Okay, so we're starting at a a segment of the exhibit that is dedicated to menus from the Lord Printing Company. Why is this an important company? They were the only printing company in the United States who were dedicated exclusively to printing menus. For the whole country or just for L.A.? Mostly for L.A., but they did some stuff throughout the Southwest. They did some stuff for Vegas, a few stray things farther east, but mostly out west. Um, But Lord was also famous because they were the first people to put color photographs on menus. So we have allegedly them to thank uh, for that trend. Those kind of garish, overly red photographs of Waldorf salad and things? Exactly. I mean, we can, you know, garish color, that's Los Angeles. Um, We've got the original printing blocks uh, for cookbooks uh, for the Brown Derby and for a a rare Brown Derby menu with an FDR silhouette. That's FDR right there. I'm just, I'm flabbergasted by what looks like the blueprint for a big boy menu. That's just a piece of America that 
can't be replaced. Absolutely. It's like looking at Elvis's corpse or something. <laughs> yes. Um, all right, let's go to maybe your earliest menu. Sure. Earliest menu in the library's collection um, is here in the exhibit from 1875 from an annual feast and ball that was thrown by a guy named Don Mateo Keller at his uh, winery downtown, and it was an invite-only banquet that featured all sorts of meat products. This is one of the examples of how menus are documents of privilege. Yeah, in some way. I mean, most of, you know, in the, in the late 19th century, if you were eating out, you had money. Dining was still a real privileged act. Uh, so most of the earliest menus that we have in the collection uh, are mostly banquet menus. Uh, you know, very elaborate, elegant hotel banquet menus, private celebrations. We've got a menu that was a dinner for Albert Einstein, for example, Holly Selassie. Um, it's good to know he was served melon balls, oriental, which I like quite a bit. This, of course, would be the guy on whom Rastafarianism is sort of based. Right? Yeah, I mean, he's a very controversial figure um, historically, so um, it's kind of fun to be able to sit down and see, see what he ate when he visited Los Angeles. But the thing about these menus and this first one that you're pointing out, the kind of earliest one you have, is it is so subtle. It basically says dinner in the kind of very turn-of-the-century looking font, and then it just has stuff listed. And the thing that strikes me about it is that is very similar to the menus that you see today, these kind of stripped down, very minimalist menus. Yeah, absolutely. The kind of return to simplicity that we often see now, I think, is an echo of some, in some ways of that early printing and design style, with the difference that there's very few adjectives on this menu. So you will never, it doesn't often tell you how things are cooked or what ingredients are used. So, you know, if it's a meat, it's just going to say it's veal. But why is that? I, I, I'm going to guess it's immense trust that, that you were going out to a banquet at a winery uh, in 1875 and you were going to be very happy with what was given to you. Regardless, money had been spent and it would be showing up on the plate. That's about right. Yeah. All right. Um, you, uh, you have an entire wall of menus that the menu reflects what is being sold. That's right. And so, you know, because famously LA as a car city, we have had an architectural trend where buildings were often designed to look like the things that they sold. So the hot dog stand that looks like a hot dog, the donut shop that looks like a donut. Very interestingly, you then go through the menu collection and you find that there's menus that echo that trend. So we've got programmatic architecture. These are programmatic menu. Um, this is a, a menu for a buffalo steak shaped like a buffalo. Uh, the Redwood House, whose menu is Redwood Tree. It looks like a cross-section yeah. of a Redwood Tree. Oh, and then we've got, <laughs> what is this? This is a menu that is shaped like a monkey. Yeah, so these are, there are a few that are a little off the mark. Um, so this was a part of the, one of the many South Seas, vaguely Polynesian, you know, restaurants. It was a big trend in Los Angeles in the last century. And um, one of the earliest and most prominent was the Zamboanga uh, restaurant and nightclub. They've got a Philippines namesake, and they decided... What else says the Philippines better than a monkey smoking a pipe on the cover of the menu? So some, some you're a little bit like, not sure what they were going for. And then a lot of them are actually mixed in with miniature menus, so they're really small menus. So this is probably one of my favorites. This is for the Philips Whiz Inn from 1943. And it is a chicken restaurant, so you've got the menus in the shape of a chicken, but it's also incredibly tiny. We're only displaying the cover. If you were to flip it over, it's as if they had done the layout of the text like with tweezers. I mean, it's just, you know, three-point font. Um, it's incredible. Why is that? Why are they so small? There was a trend that kind of took off in Los Angeles, but that I do think um, was national, which was the souvenir menu. There's all these souvenir menus that were meant to be little and portable that you can then put a little stamp on and send it to a friend. The equivalent of bragging. It's the, it's yes. the pre-Instagram version of bragging about how awesome you eat. Yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's like analog social media. 
USC professor Josh Kuhn. He curated the LA Public Library's new exhibit and book, To Live and Dine in LA. The exhibit's on through November, and you can see videos from it on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, comedy duo Tim and Eric tell us how to improve our lives by waging war on bees. Of course. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, we'll hear some new music from Neil Young. And in just a few minutes, the co-creator of the TV drama Unreal takes us behind the scenes of reality TV. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. That's right. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week are Tim Heidecker and Eric Wareheim. They created the hilarious and deeply strange comedy series Tim and Eric Awesome Show. Great job. And now at last, they've published a self-help book. Yes. It's called Tim and Eric Zone Theory, Seven Easy Steps to Achieve a Perfect Life. Here's a clip from the promotional video they made about it. Zone master Tim Negrume and I have cracked the code. We spent over 15 years of hard research making the Zone Theory a system that could work for you. Now we can access the ability to translate the power that exists with inside the zone system and achieve an alignment of the zone system to make sure that the alignments of the zone system become congruent with the zone theory, which is just seven steps. There you go. <laughs> Makes total sense. I get it. The book includes chapters on, quote, how to smell yourself, and of course, quote, how to destroy bees. Mm. Tim, welcome. Well, thank you. And welcome, Eric. Thank you so much. Praise Baha, Pristimi. Uh, well, uh, there you go. One of, the, one of the gods of your new system. Uh, first of all, I do think a lot of people would be curious to know why one would destroy bees. Um, they're a nuisance and they're dangerous. They spread hmm. disease and they okay. serve no function beyond being a pest. Yeah, there are a lot of facts. I mean, the reason we wrote this book, there's a lot of facts out there about different religions and different ways to be a better person and these environmental issues. And one thing that's a total farce is the bee thing. Mm -hmm. People are so worried about the bees and... We're here to say you got to get rid of those bees. We did a little of our own yeah. scientific research and found out that the sort, you know, we, we you hear about honey and bees and pollen and these things. It's all a joke. It's all sort of manufactured it's stuff. All, it's all fake. Well, the unsung hero in the insect world is the fly, the common house fly. And that's the one, the flies provide the honey. And that was a, sort of a mind-blowing <laughs> piece of information we found out. It's so much to learn. Yeah. So it's pretty clear the book and your style of comedy is... Totally absurd. What? No. Yes. Which, we confess, makes us jealous because it seems like you're not bound by any rules, but of course it does take craft to make something absurd actually funny. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you find makes the difference between absurdity and hilarity? Um, well, we don't like to talk about comedy too much because it's, uh, it's, you start sounding pretty pretentious pretty quick, but I'll be happy to. We did tell you this is a public radio <laughs> show, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, like this is our bread and butter. Um, I think as long as it's got some kind of point of view and it's not just pure whimsy, you know, we always try to do stuff that has a, some kind of message buried in there that mm. comes from the way we look at the world. In this case being, I mean, uh, taking to task these self-help books slash New Age religion right. books. What first was there one that stood out to you as particularly ripe for satire? Well, not so much one. I mean, we went to the Goodwill, which which is where you'll find most of them because <laughs> that's where they all are. People tend to get yeah. rid of them pretty yeah, quickly. It's the Alexandria mm. Library yeah. of self help books. Yeah. So we like the, the there's always numbers involved. There's you know twelve reasons to do something or the three easy ways to go about something. So a lot of them are recipe books. Really like new age hippy dippy ones mm. are just long 
500 pages of how to make a potion for, to make you more positive of that day. Re- literally? Like food, things yes. to ingest? Yeah, I can't remember the name of this one, but it was all mushrooms and herbs and stuff, and we got inspired from that. Yeah, there's a lot of ingestion in this book. Yes. Yeah, there is there is some book you showed me, Eric, about the way to cook with a certain bodily fluid that you wouldn't want to cook with. What? That you normally would. <laughs> yes. It's a, it's a yeah. fluid that men produce, women don't. <laughs> Yeah, put it that way. Kind of fill in the dots there. Yeah. I was also reading, at the time writing this, I was reading Going Clear, of course. The Scientology expose. Yeah, Yeah. about Lawrence Wright. And that heavily skewed things for us. There are also moments in this book and and in your TV shows where the comedy turns into almost horror. The section in this book called Removing Your Tubes (laughs) is is truly grisly. Uh, I know, (laughs) what turns something from something from funny into frightening and why are you so interested in that line well for most for a lot of people that there it never turns into funny it, it will remain hard, hard <laughs> yeah. fun. and grisly yeah but you know that that kind of stuff is based off of real things that happened to us for example i had this weird fatigue illness last year and i went to a lot of eastern doctors hmm. who, who would make you do the, the craziest thing cleanses and these ozone therapy where you remove all this blood and put all this oxygen oh, really hmm. bizarre experimental things that this that's just what the book is based off of just the, kind of the next level of things, you're telling us things. removing your tubes is based on <laughs> yes. reality well yeah it's like a comedy oh. thing where you say let's just ag- all agree that we all are filled with tubes right? <laughs> and then we can <laughs> this is our proceed premise. along yeah. Yeah. first therefore they could be removed right all right i guess uh, so our audience apparently didn't do very well in helping themselves so they have questions for you okay god help them here's something from phil in georgia phil asked this is a tough one I was having dinner at a friend's recently. It turns out the turkey being served was nothing but an inflated football disguised mm. to look like a turkey. What is the proper thing to do here? Eat it and pretend it isn't a football? Now, mm. this is a case you were asking about comedy when it just is absurd for, for no reason. <laughs> Phil in Atlanta has a lot of work to do in that department. <laughs> What's your point of view, Phil? Yeah. Yeah, where is he say. coming from? A lot so, of- a lot of people come up to us and just want to riff with us so they'll just say something <laughs> wacky and weird and we just look at them with a straight face and usually just walk away. So the etiquette, so <laughs> Phil's got an etiquette. The real problem here is why are you doing this to Tim and Eric? Right. And it's a shame because we're guys of great life experience where, you know, we've, we're have we successful mm. in what we do. It's a great opportunity to ask, ask uh, you know, serious questions. Oh, well, serious, hey, we have, we can get, we have some we of those. those. Okay. Here's, here's maybe a more common etiquette problem. So this one comes from Sarah in Los Angeles. And Sarah writes, I've been trying to give a friend a gift for over two months. Mm. The first time I will have a chance to see him is at a dinner party. Is it okay to present the gift in front of others mm. when I have no gifts for anyone else? Mm. That's a good question. That's a good question. What I actually do this move, and you don't. You don't bring it to the table. You keep it in the car or you bring it in a, in a satchel. And you hang mm. up the satchel at the door, and then once people are starting to disperse, you bring her over. There's nothing worse than being a show-off. Yeah. Everyone else feels very sad. It feels like Sarah in L.A. knows the answer to this question. <laughs> Sarah, you just sounded like your zone theory. Look inside yourself. Yeah, you yeah. have all the answers. You have all the answers, Sarah. <laughs> all right, here's something from Mark in Pittsburgh, California. What? Yes, there is a Pittsburgh in <laughs> no. California. There's no H at the end of it, according to this spelling I have in front okay. of me. Mark asks, is it polite to stop someone from playing an online multiplayer game, say for dinner, chores, or to pay attention to me? Mm. It is only a game, but also it may have taken hours for the game players to get where they are. Um, well, all games, I'm sure, can be paused. 
I don't know. Can you in an online multiplayer game? Though? Oh, Isn't I don't the know. Game continuing without you? Oh, I, I'm so far removed from no, even knowing people that engage in that. I tuned out the first time you said game. I'm, I'm in a whole other place right now. So then it is polite to get them to stop. Yeah, I would, yeah, I would go over and unplug the system. All right. That's pretty harsh. Yeah. And who knows, maybe Mark is from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but just doesn't know where he is right now because he and his <laughs> yeah, friends right. are, all, are all gamers. Pittsburgh. <laughs> I think it's California. Mark, put down all the right. game, pick up our book, and change your life yeah. once and for all. Well said. Tim and Eric, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave, I'm pretty sure. This was a hoot. Thanks for having us. Tim Heidecker and Eric Wareheim. Their new book is called Tim and Eric Zone Theory, Seven Easy Steps to Achieve a Perfect Life, and it comes out this week. And folks, there's a shorter way to make your life perfecter. Submit your etiquette questions to us. Just head to dinnerpartydownload.org, click contact, and prepare for enlightenment. Or a scolding. Cable channel Lifetime isn't exactly known for airing tough critiques of modern culture, but its new drama series is exactly that. It's called Unreal. It takes place behind the scenes of a fictional reality dating show, kind of like The Bachelor, and it follows a smart feminist field producer named Rachel, whose job on the show forces her to compromise just about every moral she has. She's expected to goad female contestants into behaving badly on screen. In this clip, the show's director orders Rachel to manipulate one of the older contestants into appearing desperate and pathetic. You know something, that's going to be super tough because she's very smart and guarded. In her oh, last relationship, it was uh, it was rough, right, Doc? Yeah, she does show some signs of uh, PTSD, it's true. And, and also... that is why we cast her for the crazy. All right, besides, she knew what she was in for. They all do. Crazier, the better. Unreal was co-created by my guest, Sarah Gertrude Shapiro. Her other credits include producing nine seasons of the real show, The Bachelor. And Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So first of all, explain what a producer does on reality TV shows like the one portrayed on this show. Well, it's been about 10 years since I actually worked in that part of the industry. So I'm not really like fit to comment on how it works now. Um, I mean, I can talk a little bit about... What you experienced, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was a field producer, which means the person who's out in the field actually producing the content. So part of that job involves planning romantic dates. I'm very, very good at romantic dates. Um, <laughs> and helping the editors identify storylines with the contestants, um, identifying who these people are, how they might interact with other people, what situations would provoke the best responses from them. And then we hand off the footage to the editors who put it together. Well, this is actually what what came as a surprise to me. I think a lot of people know that, you know, a lot of these shows, after they're shot, there's editing used to kind of sculpt a story. But a lot of the drama from this show comes from the fact that this is also happening in real time. As the show is being shot, field producers are actually on the set urging the contestants to maybe drink or make advances on The Bachelor. To what extent was that kind of thing actually happening? I think it's pretty common knowledge. Like, you know, producers are definitely there with them, sort of guiding them through the process. There is a soap opera quality, I would say, to this show. <laughs> totally. There are a lot of big dramatic events happening almost every minute. And not unlike <laughs> the reality shows it's criticizing, actually. <laughs> what maybe seems like just a juicy narrative plot point that actually happened in the industry? It is fiction, soup to nuts. But I think you can look around. I don't think anything is that far off stuff that actually does happen. And what's been interesting is that unintentionally, you know, we've had people come forward since we made the show and say, you nailed it. 
<laughs> and you're like, really? Oh, no. Yeah. Because on Unreal, there is psychological manipulation going on to a really harrowing degree. Like, producers are spreading false rumors to get the contestants to react. At several point, Rachel gets contestants to freak out at her so the footage can be used to paint them as psychopaths. What were people saying of that was real? You know, the, I guess the anecdotal but not very specific response we had that was probably the most chilling. I mean, it's very nonspecific. Um, after we screened the pilot episode at South by Southwest, a young woman got up and just said, I just want to say I was Rachel and I got out. Well, actually, I'd like to ask how you got in because you, you're a Sarah Lawrence grad. You are an avowed feminist. And here's a show that notoriously kind of stereotypes women and then pits them against each other. Yeah, I often say it was kind of like a vegan getting uh, hired to work in a slaughterhouse. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> could not have been more diametrically opposed to sort of everything I had spent my life, you know, deciding that I was. Um, oh, no. I actually ended up working on The Bachelor through sort of a contract snafu. I hadn't been hired to work on that show. I was working on a pretty innocuous other show called High School Reunion and then was told I was getting moved on to The Bachelor and said, oh, God, no, you don't want me. I'm a feminist. And they just said, check your contract. Sorry, we do. <laughs> we do. You were apparently so good at this that The Bachelor only let you go when you promised to move out of California and not work for competing shows. What do you think made you so good at it? You know, that is, that is something I have thought about a lot. I... I'm, a, you know, I was kind of raised right. Like, I'm hardworking. I could not allow myself to get fired. I think I might be a little disarming, like, girl next door or something. People like to tell me their secrets. I um, am a genuinely compassionate and empathetic person, which is Which pretty... gets people to open up to you. Yeah, and I think that also just being a writer, like, I've been writing since I was five, so I just had a really strong sense of story mm-hmm. and kind of a deep-seated hatred of popular prom queen girls so there was maybe some like vitriol and violence inside oh, me that wow. helped it's like a way yeah. subconsciously to get back at them in a way yeah like maybe like i really wanted to win so maybe that was a good maybe kind of good at it. i was a killer i was a little bit of a killer oh but also God. you know this character is not me i mean i was also not good at a lot of things because i was you know i'm not really great at being fake i'm not mm. You know, there are a lot of people that were better at it than I was. I just think that I happen to be good at some of the storytelling stuff and the talking to people stuff. I have a friend who does some casting for reality TV, and she said that she learned after doing it for a while how easy it was to make a teen or a young 20-something cry, because those were the kind of shows she was doing. And she said, (laughs) basically, ask them about their parents and then ask if their parents are proud of them. Did you learn any kind of... I don't know if you can call them tricks of the trade. I'll put quotes around that. (laughs) Did you kind of learn things over time that just psychologically seem to work with everybody? You know, pretty much asking any woman in her, I don't know, like 20s to 30s, maybe any woman who's single, why are you single? Oh, wow. Just letting that one sit there for a while usually works. Parents are an easy target. Grandparents also. It's just kind of heartbreaking to think about how frail people are. It it does bring to mind the question that I'm always wondering is why would you go on a show where they, I think at this point we all know there's going to be some manipulation involved. Yeah, you know, that is actually a central question um, that we ask a lot in the writer's room for Unreal because one of the founding principles of this show is that we have to have equal compassion for the contestants as we do for the producers because the girls in front of the camera, it's really easy to make fun of them. And Mm. I think there are some really genuine reasons why people go on these shows. Some people come from small towns and this will be one of the biggest things that's ever happened in their lives. Uh It expands their dating pool. Now millions of people have sort of viewed their Match.com profile essentially. 
And, you know, there's definitely a healthy number of people that go on thinking they can beat the game. Mm. But what we explore is that it's really not beatable, that you have an army of very, very smart people making these shows, an army of editors that are very good at their jobs, and you are completely out of your element. Sarah Gertrude Shapiro, co-creator of the TV drama Unreal. It airs Monday nights at 10 p.m. on Lifetime. And folks, that's the Dinner Party download for this week. Happy 4th. Careful with those fireworks. Indeed. And speaking of firecrackers, Jackson Musker is the producer of the Dinner Party download. (laughs) He receives assistance from associate producer Nina Patak. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Chris Clark and Garrett Lang engineered. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Thanks this week to Marissa Gluck. You can keep up with us all week on Twitter or Instagram, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to enjoy on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Neil Young is a... Well, you've heard of him. He's got a new album out this week called The Monsanto Years. Here's a track from it called Wolf Moon. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Ah, you all right? There's a fly in my tea. Oh, no, leave it. It's a honey fly. Oh. Mm. <laughs> <laughs>